This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast where I explore a full-spectrum spirituality in conversation and in reflection, particularly organizing some of these reflections around the practice of yin yoga and meditation, particularly a receptive form of meditation. And so my guests today on the podcast, Linda Madero and Nellie Koffer, are meditation colleagues of mine. Um, I actually studied with Linda for quite some time. Um, she functioned as a mentor to me as a teacher, as a practitioner. And they have a new book out uh, that's now available in the United States. It's called Reflective Meditation. And in this conversation, this is our second conversation about their new book, we really explore what's developing in the practice, specifically what develops through the dynamics of receptivity, deep listening, through the, per the permission to be creative and to improvise with your experience while you practice, how this opens us to some of the, the maybe the shadow elements of our experience. Um, but ultimately what starts to take shape is that your meditation practice becomes uniquely your own. The path becomes uniquely your own. You're not trying to conform your experience to what you've read somewhere else or try to have somebody else's experience in the practice. You're truly connecting more deeply and authentically to your own direct experience and learning from that uh, over time through reflection, journaling, conversation, and, and really creativity. So I'm, I'm very uh, happy to have them both on the show. And uh, as I saw in their newsletter yesterday, the book is now available in the United States through purchase on Amazon. And Amazon is running a deal for the book as an ebook for $1.99. So there's a link for you in the show notes where you can get your own copy of this book. I highly recommend reflective meditation to any of my students, any of my friends, um, fellow colleagues on the meditative path, people that may be new to practice, or especially people that have practiced for many years and may have fallen into some really rigid ruts of practice due to an overemphasis of technique. So um, for beginners or advanced folks, or older folks, I should say, more mature meditators, this is a great book. And after you pick up your copy of Reflective Meditation, which, again, there's a link in the show notes for you, please consider dropping a review on Amazon for the book. Uh, these reviews go a long way to helping help uh, amplify the exposure and profile of the book, particularly in the early days of its publication. And I know Linda and Nellie would be super appreciative of your kind review, of course, if you, if you appreciate the book, which I'm, I'm confident you will. And while you're giving reviews, if you feel like dropping a review for the Everyday Sublime podcast on your favorite uh, podcast app, I'd be very grateful. It, mean, it means a lot to me and Terry to have your support as a listener, to leave a review, to share an episode with a friend, and or um, I always like to say thank you to all the members of the Riverbird Sangha who make this podcast uh, possible. This is a ad-free um, independently run podcasts made possible by the support and memberships of the Riverbird Sangha practitioners. So deep thank you and shout out to all those practitioners in our community. If you'd like to join the Riverbird Sangha and support the podcast that way, please check out the link I left for you in the show notes on membership to the Sangha, where you'll have access to weekly classes and our library of 
recorded tutorials, workshops, and practices as part of your membership. Just some of the features of your membership. Now, without further ado, today I bring you Linda Madero and Nellie Koffer improvising in practice. And I should add, we had to improvise a little bit in this conversation because I experienced a power outage at one point. You'll hear that glitch, but it's part of the perfectly imperfect experience that's always unfolding. Hope you enjoy. I am with Linda Madero and Nellie Koffer. Thank you both for coming back on the show with me. Um, you've been on previously uh, to discuss your new book, Reflective Meditation, Cultivating I want to check the title, Kindness and, and, and Curiosity in the Buddhist Company. And to listeners of this podcast, um, the, the, the strong similarity between how you both frame meditation and share meditation practice and how I try to emphasize it is that we both share similarities of emphasizing receptivity, uh, a profound tolerance and inclusivity of thoughts and all experiences that go on and um a an intention to to really reflect with or reflect upon the experiences that occur during meditation and i just want to welcome you back both and try to continue with the conversation we had last time which i thought was uh, really interesting one of the things we had flagged was to talk about what develops in this approach to meditation because Maybe on the surface of it, um, someone new to meditation might think that not much could develop when you just sit down and let your mind do its thing or let your mind spool out or run into any direction it wants to go. It seems to run con contrary to what most people tend to think of as meditation as a form of mental focus or control. So exploring what develops and um, and then we also flagged possibly how this practice uh, opens to examining or integrating shadow content and, and what that exactly means. Um, but I guess maybe to start, where are we with the book right now in terms of its uh, entry into the world? And how are you both doing? How are we both doing, Nellie? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to address the book because um, I'm, um, I guess I'm pretty excited. I guess that's how I'm doing too. Um, I'm excited because we're just very close to launching the U.S. edition. Um, it had previously, as of February 2023, been published in the New Zealand edition. But I'm really pleased that we'll have a U.S. edition available soon on Amazon, and the cost is now lowered, $15.95 U.S. So hopefully making that more accessible. Great. Great. Right, right, and and you, Linda. We'll yeah, we'll we'll also be um, offering the ebook uh, for the U.S. edition at a really low cost, like a dollar ninety nine, to to get it out there more, to have people who have already bought the New Zealand edition but want to gift this to their friends and. Um, want to write a review for us if they like the book. So there's a, there is like Nellie's talking about an excitement about this phase as well as of a little burnout <laughs> in this phase. And we talked about power dynamics and um, 
those types of things the last time we talked, Josh. So one of the things I'm doing is I'll be taking a sabbatical in June just from teaching to rest a little bit so that I can get some energy back. And I know you know what that's like leading your sangha. Yes. I mean, um, my I would say my career burnout coincided with the arrival of the pandemic. Um, you know, having taught on the road for a long time, I I don't know if I would have said it at the time, but I can look back now and I can see how much I, the wheels were just coming off my my energetic system from be, from being on the road. So I can definitely empathize with teacher fatigue, teacher burnout, um, and it's great to hear you're going to take care of yourself. Um, I just add one little thing here before we move on, which is that dollar ninety nine ebook. That's only going to be available for a very short time. We don't know when, and it's really to encourage it more accessibility. And actually, you need reviews on Amazon, and you need verified mm-hmm. reviews. People who bought the book there. It's how that system works. So anyone who could purchase. Um, reflective meditation, cultivating kindness and curiosity in the Buddhist company. Thank you, thank you. Right, and you know, hopefully, this conversation will inspire folks to check that book out, pick it up, and um, and then when they maybe when they feel the developments themselves, they'll be equally right. inspired to leave very glowing reviews, which I will be doing myself. Um, and we talked about a lot of that in our in the first conversation, just the style of how you wrote it, the conversational accessibility, um, the the way you really bring out the voices of your students in the writing, um, and how how helpful I found that in terms of coming and and, and connecting more closely with my own experience in meditation. Um, so. I will have a link in the show notes for folks to, to to check out our previous conversation. But maybe to start, do either one of you or both of you want to try to give, I hate this phrase, but the the six-second elevator pitch of what in your words defines or characterizes or 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 dis- distinguishes reflective meditation from garden variety meditation that you might see on any variety of head head uh kind of apps or uh practices that are out there in the in the popular culture um i'm wondering if what distinguishes us isn't somewhat um what develops in the practice and i think that many people are used to being told what to do in meditation and therefore what should develop. And I think a distinction is that we're not telling people what they should do in meditation. And therefore, we don't know what will develop. So one of our statements is that um, that we're really founded on a respect for diversity. So there's going to be many different ways to meditate and you will find them through this practice. That's what we're trying to do is give a practice to help you find your way to meditate. The word that came to my mind as you were speaking, Linda, is deeply listening, that we learn how to deeply listen to ourselves, our what's going on internally in our body, mind, heart. Um, and we learn to listen, therefore, to others deeply. 
And that changes, I, I think it really actually changes everything. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't need to be, a, you know, extreme here, but really listening to ourselves and knowing what's going on internally really allows us to make better choices in our life, um, helps well some of the reactivity because we're listening internally. And of course, when we think about being able to listen to others deeply, I mean, that is what I want from the people who I care about in my life is for them to listen to me deeply. Mm -hmm. yeah, right. And oh, go ahead, Josh, I was just going to coming back to what you were talking about uh, briefly for a second, Linda, um, you know, a lot of systems, right. They, they, there is this idea that, or a sense that focus your attention on something when you're able to do that certain qualities or you know, the cognitive capacities start to grow when, as you're able to do that. And it, there's sort of a, a, almost a guarantee attached to the method that says, do this and that will occur for you. And, um, and it, we, we covered before how much an approach like that can leave a lot of a meditator's experience out of the lens of examination or, or lens of, or inclusivity of value, a scope of value. Right. Like it just doesn't get stuff doesn't get valued. Um, so in the deep listening that you're speaking to, Nelly, um, the practitioners is just you're they're listening to anything that's going on with 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 an openness to of curiosity towards it. Um and whenever I've tried to share that people, students will often come back with a question in the sharing time along the lines of what's the difference between this practice and just thinking in my, like, like thinking and, and ruminating when I'm in the office or when I'm in traffic or something like that. And, um, you know, I, I, I this is, this is where like, I'm taking what you just said, Linda, and, and I know I have this tendency to try to fill in the answer, mm -hmm. right? And, and and give an argument or give a give an essay around. Well, here's what can develop. Um, but how, you know, how, what have you seen people share, or, or how do you how do you how do you respond to a, if someone came to you with that kind of a question? I mean, just the the quippy answer is you don't have your eyes closed usually in traffic when you're driving, when you're thinking about something. I mean, there really is something to taking the meditative posture, whether that's lying down or, you know, sitting in a recliner or sitting in a lotus position. There's something that changes thinking when thinking, feeling, be, being, when you hold relatively still. I, Nellie, you've kind of used the word, we're doing this comfortably. You know, we're just holding relatively still in a comfortable posture, and then we're allowing things to go on. It's it, we are really making a distinction there. Um, it's not just any kind of thinking when you're up and you know doing your chores. That's a little bit different. It can also be contemplative. It can lead to something else. But what develops when you hold the body relatively still and let that happen? Uh, you know, it makes me think of um, what's very big here in uh, Oregon right now. You know, we're about to uh, launch psilocybin-approved therapy. Um, and so there's a lot going on um, 
in the world, in my world about that. And, um, you know, some of what happens, and this doesn't happen most of the time, but some of the time, is we do get into altered states in meditation. They're not perhaps as, as um, whatever, not extreme is not the right word, but full, full bore as they might be with psychedelics, but things, consciousness changes and that stillness, and therefore our thoughts change or are perceived differently. Well, that's one difference. And of course, sometimes it isn't different at all. Sometimes we do sit down <laughs> and meditate, and it's just like it would be in traffic. And we learn to tolerate yeah. that. Tolerate and make that distinction. I mean, this is the part of it, is that sometimes we think it's the same, but when we're asked a question, how was that, we can start to see some of the 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 slight differences, the things that matter to us, the way we were relating to that experience was different. So there, there is really a, let's say, kind of a layered um, approach to talking about your experience in meditation that's not just simple, straightforward, this is this, that, this is, you know, that is that. There's more complexity to it, and that's what we can find by doing this. This is going to probably sound a bit like a digression for a second, so bear with me. But I told you, Linda, just before we started talking, that um, what my favorite author, favorite writer, Martin Amos, passed away last Friday. And, you know, I, he had no interest in spirituality or really writing about spirituality, but he, he had a collection of essays called The War Against Cliché. And in one of the interviews I, I heard with him, he was talking about how you know, writers who might dabble and use language like rummage through a handbag or the stifling heat. <laughs> and he said, this is just dead language. It's heard thought, heard speech, heard, heard feeling. And it, it, what, when, I, when I heard him reflect on that, I realized part of the reason why I loved him was because he, his writing brought a freshness to my attention. That, that that saw beyond cliche, saw cliche and saw beyond cliche. And that was part of what drew me to spirituality because I wanted to have a fresh, awake presence to life that wasn't kind of plastered over by the mind-numbing cliches of just, hi, how are you? How, are you good? Hi, how are you? That kind of thing. And and the, and then the profound irony that I've I've really come to see, and I know this is going to sound very critical of kind of mainstream meditation, but the profound irony is that the practices that are meant to bring a fresh attention actually then gets like kind of strangulated strangulated by the the cliche language of how we talk about the practice, and that's really you know one of the wonderful things I see the the style that you're emphasizing allowing for is the freshness of individual expression that this the 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 um the 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 kind of the, the encouragement and the permission for students to just express it in the way they will and get to know their experience in that way and um and so I, I was thinking of that when you were when you mentioned that about the reflection process there. Yeah and it's interesting that we're considered radical now. I mean, it's, or it's considered radical to, you know, depart in a sense from traditional understanding or, um, you know, uh, go into something that's unorthodox or innovative, so to speak, which is really what people are doing when they're 
creating and describing their experience. They're using their own language. They're, they're coming up with their own systems, their own understandings. And this, in a sense, um, has become more of a radical approach to meditation. I don't know if you want to jump in on that, Nelly, but the, the, the radical approach, the, the other word I want to explore is uh, you send out a document with some thoughts and some maybe bullet points we can we can cover. But one of the words that leapt out at me was improvisation, the, the, the permission to improvise. And um, as a fan of jazz, as a, not a very <laughs> good like jazz that. improviser, I love that. <laughs> and I've, I've seen this myself. So I'd love to hear, have you both you know, weigh in on what does that mean to improvise in meditation and 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 how does that work? How do how, how do how do people experience it? I need, can I add to your question? Not sure. improvise in meditation and imp, therefore learn how to improvise in life. Because Excellent. that's really the point. Mm-hmm. We never know what life is going to throw at us. Well, we may maybe know sometimes. We know what we're maybe going to have for dinner or something. But so much of what goes on, we need to really improvise. Um, and to do that as skillfully as possible, we're training that capacity in meditation by letting things go on and learning to skillfully improvise with what comes up and learning when and reflecting back and learning when it didn't go so well. That's not a problem. That's when we can learn. Right, right. It's a really, uh, you know, in that way, we've called it a tried and true path a trial and error path, like there's going to be times where our improvisations don't work. I mean, and it'll be clear and you'll have time to reflect upon that, bring it into your next meditation. Like this is an ongoing process, right? That we're learning and developing the skills um, to be better jazz musicians, Um, (laughs) you know, to be better meditators, but better people. Yeah. I don't know which jazz musician or educator said it, but the idea is in jazz, there are no wrong notes. There are just better choices. Mm-hmm. And you know, and that's say life. Uh, exactly. <laughs> some wrong choices in life. It's the, the stakes are actually higher. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Yes. Um, but. but what's an example? I mean, for someone that's listening and they, you know, they hear this idea of improvising and meditation. What does improvising and meditation involve? Or how does it manifest? I mean, basic choice, I think you brought in one word, and I'll start there, um, is that, for example, you're meditating in a certain posture and you start to have pain. And there's a dictum of sitting with the pain. And this is very common. I mean, most people think I shouldn't move, I shouldn't scratch, I shouldn't adjust. Basically, They're not taught when should I move, scratch, or adjust. And so you have to go through a trial and error process around that. Sometimes it does help to sit through certain pain, and something's developed from that. But other times you have to stop the meditation, or you have to get up and leave, or you have to adjust your posture. And we can't really be the ones to tell you that. Um, We can have a conversation with you about that, but you're improvising your posture and what how you're relating to your posture and what's happening with your posture we are really improvising here <laughs> so I, I i sent you an email just there we i we had a power outage all of a sudden it was a blip and the computer went dead so we're back and 
I'm going to pick up just where we left off. Linda, you were ta- we were talking about improv. Like, what's developing um, in terms of well, talking about improvisation and practice and making choices. And and you were in the mid mid sentence when I lost power. I actually thought I was at a pretty good place to cut me off, but I was in essence trying to get at how much even with just the basic posture of meditation a person has to learn how to improvise move shift change make decisions and you can't make one decision and stick with it all the time it just isn't going to work um over time you have to learn how to listen to yourself um so i'm going to kind of stop there nelly did you have another Oh, I just want to go to what just happened in the now. (laughs) Your power went out. We all improvised without a lot of anxiety. You know, either, you know, we we made the um, guess that your power or your internet went down somehow. And, you know, it was okay. We deal with it as we deal with it. And I think that's what develops is that capacity to cope with... The ins and outs and changes and blips and power outages of life. Well, you know, I was, while it was all happening and, you know, while my power was down and I was scribbling you an email over my phone, um, I was reflecting, wow, if this had happened two years ago, I'd be in a cold sweat right now, um, probably hyper, starting to hyperventilate. And I thought, it just doesn't matter. It's going to work out. We'll be able to splice this together somehow. The cracks won't look so bad, and we'll carry on. I love I that. Could... that. That could be a motto. We'll be able to splice it together somehow. <laughs> cracks won't matter so much, and we'll be able to carry on. Perhaps that's our definition of improvise. And for me, I, I would tag on is that that there is a significant reduction of anxiety when the, when the something happens. Um, and that you could compare yourself to two years ago. Um, you know, I went like, oh, I could just pause the recording. Oh, I could check my email and see what happened. It was like, I could also think during that time. And this is back to why I think thinking is so important. I think thinking is so important in meditation is because you don't then lose your facility to actually assess and discern and, and take in what's happening Um, I'm not going to a be mindful, be mindful or relax, calm, calm, calm. I'm not giving myself those kinds of directions when I need to improvise. I'm actually much more in the moment of improvising. Mm -hmm. And Josh, what you just said that two years ago, I would have been in a cold sweat. You are talking about what develops through reflection right there because you'd been sort of aware mindful um, of what happened two years ago to be able to know what has developed in the last two years, which is, yeah, it wasn't great that this was hard. This was a challenge, but you didn't break out into a cold sweat. So that is exactly how we start to perceive what's developed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Through the, through the, through looking, Mm -hmm. looking back over time. And remember that is definitely something that, you know, I've been a journal writer most of my life, but once I brought my journal into my meditation, it was, you know, it another level of, 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 of reflection started to open up. But, you know, coming back to what you're talking about with posture, Linda, um, 
you know, the, the, the permission to move, the permission to adjust, the, per, the permission to, to explore and, and, and improvise with how the body is, um, that did not feel at correct to me in the beginning. And I, you know, I can, I would, I'm almost a cartoon caricature in the beginning of what I thought I needed to be. And in terms of sitting still in a particular looking, a posture that looked a particular way and the amount of neurosis that that spun up, like, and I'm not kidding. Like I, I can tell you stories about taking a, a, a small plastic bag of buckwheat holes in the, at the end of the day into the meditation hall to fill up my buckwheat cushion with another inch of support or then to remove two inches. Cause I felt like things had opened up and I'm going back at, at night after night, changing the height of my cushion, fantasizing about buying a different cushion, filling my, my closet up with benches and other cushions, <laughs> you know, all because I, of some idea of, of, of what it needed to be or what it was supposed to be. Um, and so that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, in some ways in posture, and then to adapt or adopt that, uh, playfulness with how we engage with thoughts, um, you know, to me has just been so much gentler and, and just has dropped the hangups around I'm a good meditator, bad meditator. Um, I'm, I'm just, I'm a meditator who meditates and that's <laughs> what comes up is there. But you're a meditator who reflects and a meditator who journals. I mean, so I, I'm even going back to this kind of idea of, what happens when we reflect right after we meditate and then we put it into words and we sometimes, many times, a lot of us journal it and write it down. And there is something about that process added to meditation that makes it, I makes it stick more. Like there's a sense of, I know this differently from having these three iterations of my meditation practice drawn, drawn out. And I really would say most people don't even know how to journal. Don't even, I mean, maybe they've wanted to journal or they, they, but they don't know what do I do with this? How do I write about my experience? And it's so important. I think part of what Nellie and I are doing is bringing that out and talking more about how to, how to journal your thoughts and experience and talk about it. Before we, I would like to explore that to talk about the some ideas around journaling. But uh, before we dive right into that, you had mentioned three iterations, which I think is the sitting itself or the meditation itself, the reflection through journaling. What's the other part of that triune iteration? <laughs> it might be four, because then you journal or reflect, but then you talk about it with somebody. Okay. okay. Nelly, would you say you you might say something different? No, I was going to say exactly the same thing. Cool. <laughs> I mean, having tried to share it, share this approach or a form of this approach, uh, I will say that the journaling pieces that I've one that I probably de-emphasize the most currently. I recommend it. I just don't talk about it openly as much, but I recommend it. But when I have shared it, I do. I have had that that question coming back. Well, you know, what do I write about? What am I supposed to? gather is you know what's what's what do i what do i explore and um i think any ideas that you find helpful or reflections on around that would be would be fun to explore that right now well i sort of see a developmental path around that as well so you know we're talking about what develops and i think what develops is really 
maybe different ways that you might choose to journal, just like different postures you might choose to sit in or lay in. Um, so I think in the beginning, it's really valuable to try to find words for actually what happened. We call this the language of experience. I coined that term so, because we don't talk in those terms. We don't know how to describe, uh, you know, whatever I was feeling a little dreamy and the dreaminess was sort of pleasant and it was kind of, I felt a little sway in my posture. I mean, those are experiential words um, rather than something like I daydreamed, um, you know, but anyway, so the first I think way, and at least in this approach, is to find words for what actually happened in the meditation. Alongside of, uh, maybe this is the next step, although it's not linear, so I'm, I'm kind of you know creating something linear that isn't really linear. But um, maybe another step along the way is kind of being okay with, you're not gonna remember most of it, and you're just gonna be able to write down a bit of it because it's too much too much goes on to write it all down. Now I'm not sure Linda will fill in here, but um, you know, the, another step is, you know, insights come up. And you know, I suggest at least at the beginning, or we suggest that people put it parenthetically, insights or understandings, just so they can it's like you gotta learn how if you're gonna learn how to meditate from what comes up in meditation, you gotta know what came up from meditation. I'll pause there, Linda, and let you step in. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, this is how you develop knowing, isn't it? From awareness to knowing, I would say this is a real bridge um, because you start to put down insights, but you also start to put down things you're interested in. Like start with where the energy is, like what you can remember, what you thought was kind of interesting or something that stood out. And often when you start there, other things come back. Your your memory starts to develop. It starts to really flourish, mushroom, bloom, because you get more, um, you get on a roll, so to speak. Your awareness starts to expand. And from that, I think we've even kind of adjusted it to if something eventually didn't happen in the sitting, but it's more of your reflections on what happened. You keep writing, you keep, keep expressing that to yourself. And then that way it becomes more known. And this is what we're really trying to get people to do is know their inner world more deeply so that it can influence and be known in the external world, right? There's this kind of, trajectory where you're not just knowing this and then putting it on a shelf. There's a way that this is starting to be integrated by knowing and speaking, journaling, writing, et cetera. And it might not be known like, uh, you know, the answer to a test in yeah. school. Good it point. might not be known real, obviously real cognitively. It's known some other way uh, you know, sometimes it's known the way Josh knew that he would have been in a cold sweat two years ago. Like he could, yeah. he could pull that up, Josh. But sometimes it's not that obvious, but it's it's kind of like, you know, known at a deeper or not so um, cognitive level. And that's where we're saying that to understand and be aware of your thinking leads to development of intuition. 
And that's something that we see develop regularly with many of the people who meditate this way, mm-hmm. with ourselves included. The, 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 me- the music education metaphors keep coming to me, but, you know, um, having learned classical and jazz styles of music, um, you know, classical has lots of clear exercises and kind of rule-based pr- forms of practice that you learn and you just try to execute and perform to the best of your, of, of your ability within these set um, frameworks. And jazz is, is, is a language. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's an in the moment language of communication back and forth, a dialogue or conversation. Um, and the learning it, it, I mean, it's, it's a friend of mine compared it to trying to learn a language at say a university course or going into an immersive learning environment, uh, let's say traveling to the country of, of where the language is spoken. And on those lines, you know, in learning jazz, one thing musicians do is not just in jazz, but any kind of oral language of, of music, there's a practice of listening and then copying back what you hear like transcribing pieces like little licks or ideas and um one time when i was journaling after a meditation that that connection came to me it's like i'm sort of i'm trying to transcribe part of my experience but at the same time and i like how you described this this other ability or the, the development of of reflecting on what you remember or or building on in a different direction exploring a sort of a, a uh, a related or a associated or a dissociated theme um, that all of that is a way of, of just learning to listen. I think what, you know, coming back to what Nelly was saying earlier, just learning to deeply listen to oneself and, 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 and to collaborate with kind of an emergent, broader, wiser way of holding it all. Um so that's I just the, the idea of transcribing a bit, a bit but um, what did you want to, to add in there? You know, it goes to a little bit, we were talking before we started uh, to imagination. I'm just going to kind of bring that word in because often people will say, well, did I imagine that I was feeling that? Or did that really happen in my sitting? Or, um, you know, where is it? Where do I know where the lines are blurred and I'm going too far? And I, I do think part of this is it does um, build an active imagination. Like there's something about creating something and putting things together and um, searching for the meaning in what happened, that that is part of this whole complex um, of journaling and of reflecting after you're sitting. And that that line is different for each of us. Some of us are highly imaginative, see visual images, um, have a lot of scenarios in our meditations, and other people, something's different. Sound is more important, or there's a way that they, you know, like you're talking about music, they hear musical notes, and their imagination blossoms differently. So I do think we're walking this line of kind of finding where the imagination and our creativity helps us and leads us in a good direction and where it's kind of taking us off. Yes, and um, what Josh, what you just said about, you know, jazz and um, et cetera, it's like, okay, 
those are your that those are your life experiences that you have at hand to use as metaphors for your inner world. Now I'm not a jazz musician. I'm going to use a mm-hmm. different kind of mm-hmm. metaphor. Um, I can't think of a good example off the top, but um, so we invite people to use the metaphors for their experience that come out of their life rather than taking on another teacher's or tradition's metaphors. Mm-hmm. I had I had this, someone who I work with yesterday just talking about uh, their experience of dancing came to them mm-hmm. in meditation, mm-hmm. you know, and particularly this question of how to hold their body. Mm-hmm. And they explored, you know, the feeling of that, that, that it was this energetic return to the sort of the sense of dancing and the meditation and that that was a very interesting exploration for them. Um, as you, I think Linda, you brought up this, this, this idea of, or the, the, um, the inclusion of imagination, the active imagination at play here and how I think that the phrase that came to me is that we're kind of, culturally constipated in some way around imagination like we we're just like there's a kind of a as adults at least that i i felt like i became very stiff didn't feel comfortable drawing didn't feel comfortable exploring um creativity um i felt like i was all thumbs um but there is a way that through engaging with your own an imagination that comes up in the practice that's leading there's a there's it's it's trending towards this uh, a cultivation of knowledge and and i think that that's where this seems to be maybe i can imagine someone having a view that there's a paradox at play where we're we're allowing ourselves to make things up and yet a certain uh, understanding about a kind of truth is being is coming to us or th- through that imaginative journey um, and, I, and I think that is singularly unique about this style of practice that um, that in, in the way it's it's offered and, and, and explored. And it, it might be forgotten at times that that's a part of the path or, you know, the Buddhist path. Um, I think a recent translation that Stephen Batchelor uses as right intention, as right imagination helps remind us that that's been part of the path. And he brings in um, ways of talking about that, that kind of verify some of the things that we found naturally um, through our practice, that we can tie it into the Dharma, we can tie it into the Eightfold Path, and that it is something that develops um, in this practice. So when you say um, right imagination, or sometimes I prefer the word skillful, that really brings up this other whole other area that we'd like to explore, I know, which is, you know, sometimes we can imagine things that aren't very skillful, um, that are really maybe even scary. I mean, um, you know, Josh, you spoke about one of your early meditation retreats. I'll speak about one of my early ones, which was in Joshua Tree, and they were doing, there was a military base at the far end of the desert, and it looked like they were testing bombs to, to me. Something was going up in the air, and I was sure I wasn't getting out of there alive. I was like certain. And of course, I couldn't speak to anyone about my peers. So there I was, uh, you know, contemplating my death right then. And um, so that wasn't skillful imagination. That was 
unskillful, though based on something. Um, oh gosh, had I only been able to talk to a skillful teacher at that point, I would not have suffered so much. So there is this imagination that's not skillful, but I think we start to discern that too. It's called anxiety, it's called fear, it's called, you know, paranoia, whatever word you want to put on it, that is part of the imaginative world. Um, or part of what um, is commonly called our shadow side, you know, the underbelly of imagination and our our inner world. So let's well, that's, that's, it. that's interesting also, Nellie, because part of the setup there was the forum that you were on retreat with didn't have a place for you to talk about the shadow or a place for the shadow to be a part of the experience. And that is, uh, I'd say, one of our fortes is that we hear people talking about the shadow, the overactive imagination that goes towards dukkha, um, dukkha being hurt, vulnerability, pain, suffering, dissatisfaction, all the words that we use for dukkha these days. Like we hear people talking about that regularly. And that's a part of, um, let's say, bringing the shadow into the practice rather than trying to isolate it out or manage it and control it with certain techniques. It brings us to the subtitle of our book, Cultivating Kindness and Curiosity in the Buddha's Company, because there's a when you really have cultivated more curiosity and more kindness, there's a way we can be with those hard stuff, the shadow stuff differently. Yeah. Um, you had mentioned you wanted to maybe give a little bit of a context for what you mean by shadow or what we're, what, what we mean by shadow. And, uh, and it was a term that Jung, I believe, started to use. Um, where are we now? And I know you're a psychologist. Or, um, where are we now with like what the consensual understanding around what the shadow includes or what's your understanding of the shadow? Maybe not consensual. That's that's a setup. What's your understanding, Nellie? Thank you, Josh. I couldn't answer that. Um, yeah, it's the it's the stuff we don't want to look at. That's over there. That's you know that we that's really hard. That's um, that we don't like to. You know, I, um, I'll give myself an example. I mean, you know, from myself. I mean, you know, like I'm generally a kind and compassionate person. But you know what? When someone really annoys me, I don't feel so kind and compassionate. I just feel irritated and annoyed. I don't want to think of myself that way, you know, but it's helpful for me to bring it in and know more about it because actually my irritation is telling me something. Something is not, is gone awry in how we're relating and to not look at it doesn't work so well. So that's my understanding of the shadow that which is not part of um, the word in um, a word in psychology is ego dystonic. It doesn't fit our sense of who we want to be or think we are, um, but we're a lot of things. And to really know them rather than to exclude them, to really know that we have the capacity to be mean. But to know it, we're, I think we're less likely to act it out. And in spiritual traditions, you're not supposed to be mean 
or feel hatred or greed. And truthfully, we don't want those to develop. We're not looking to enhance those, but we're looking to know them in ourselves, know them in others, know how they bring the kind of harm because that understanding of knowing when I act like this, it actually feels bad. It makes other people feel bad. I'm start to get allergic to, to that kind of behavior in myself, but I can't really get there unless I'm willing to look at some of that underneath stuff. Um, and I, I think we're trying to normalize that. We're trying to say, this is normal. People feel this. This is part of being human. And even when you have a spiritual direction, you're going to be dealing with this stuff. It's not going to be gone just because you can watch your breath for 30 minutes on a cushion. And I think what we're also saying, which I think is fundamentally important here, is that being aware of something adds something. We're not just feeling really angry at our coworker. We are now in awareness about feeling angry. That changes it a lot. It's harder to project that out on the coworker when we know actually our own part in it, our own relationship to it. And, and are, you know, like you said, aware of it, Nellie, it's very, it's harder to put that out into the world in the same way when we have awareness of it. That, that ties into a, a, I think it was one of your quotes in the book, Nellie, that when a practitioner starts to see how a state or an experience is conditioned by multiple factors. And you can see some of them, you can't see some of them, but you get a sense of the conditionality. It's just harder to blame yourself or another person wholeheartedly. And, and it, the beautiful language for word there was the wholehearted piece. Like you're still going to have the blame fly, you know, right? But it's it's there's a little part of you that, or maybe a larger part of you that remembers. Well, no, this is not happening in a vacuum. There's lots of things at play here. Um, I'm I'm part of the dynamic. Um, there was there was another piece though that just I think in thinking about the shadow and in thinking about how much again i to make generalizations about standard approaches to meditation there's there's a turning away from difficulty or things like that when they come up because you're given a tool or a technique to, to turn, bring your attention to something and the, the explicit um the the explicit expectation is that you'll get calmer or you'll feel better you're not going to feel worse I think when I first met my 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 psycho my my psychotherapist, my mentor and teacher Jack Engler, I was surprised when he said, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't claiming any state of enlightenment, but he said he sort of quoted it Kaplow Roshi, who said, "With awakening, your problems don't go away. Now they're now they're they're observable. You have the awareness now with 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 more awakening to now deal with." Uh, all your psychological pains and wounds and unfinished, unclean business in a way, or, or karma that needs to be cleaned up. And 
maybe come back to the idea of an improvising artist and an artist who's not like a musician who's not willing to to reflect on where the notes are sounding kind of rank or discordant or not resolving well or or communicating the what their intention is they're kind of in a bubble of of you know sort of narcissistic practice of just like I'll I'll isolate myself and do my thing and not worry about what happens around it um but there's a way that sitting with the open ended nature of experience i think does often bring people as you're describing into contact with difficulties more more directly and um i think that's precisely why this this is such an effective approach in terms of i, I don't i don't know what word to put on it is it heal is it more healing is it more integrating is it providing a container where a, a greater degree of wholeness of, of being can be accessed. Um, there's something about the lack of splits or the or including the cracks that are then allowed to be part of the whole. Like the broken wholeness is a phrase that keeps coming to me. Um, and I, I, I guess, I don't know if there's, I'm just speaking here, but the, the, I, there's, there's something I appreciate about this approach and, and I'm not able to frame it as a question. <laughs> but but mm -hmm. do you want to respond to that at all? Like, well, people have used all those words, Josh, of healing, of feeling more whole. It's so holistic. It, you know, it, it's it addresses my whole self. Um, it basically, um, you know, it's it's something that uh, the person is going to tell us that, uh, you know, what comes from what happened to them. I'd never used the word healing for this approach. I was in another healing art. So I was kind of having a whole different way of thinking about healing. But when one of our people, um, one of our students, friends, um, wrote something about it for the book, how they felt really healed from this approach, it really like allowed me to use the word again and kind of say, oh, I felt that too, but I hadn't been using that word. I'd been using something else. So I mean, I would add, like people have said, it feels psychologically informed. It, it does. It feels integrating, congruent. I mean, these are a lot of things that people talk about from their experience of the practice. And, and it also includes the body. It's an integration of body and thoughts. It's not just yeah. thinking. There's body, emotion, thoughts. I, I want to make sure before we end, we get one thing in here, though. Probably more than one. Go for um, it. And I have but, one too. <laughs> see, there we go. Uh, but, you know, when we talk about the shadow side, it's also true that people must make choices about what's okay and what's too much. It's called, you know, the lingo that's used now is trauma-informed mindfulness. We feel like it's that's very integrated or very much a part of this approach, even before we heard about that term or studied it, which is that, you have choice about your posture. You have choice about when you go too much into things that are hard. You develop, just like you were saying with jazz, but I think you used the word, a uh, sound sounded rank. Did you use that word? Yeah, anyway, yeah. You start to pick up and develop that capacity to know, oh, this is too much now. No, no, I'm going to do something else, be it you know, return to another med the breath or another meditative focus or get up and end the meditation. 
that is so important to develop that. Otherwise, you could get re-traumatized, and that is not at all what we see happening for people. Mm-hmm. Right, and that can feel surprising, Nellie. You know, not surprisingly, I wanted to say something very similar, which is, you know, that it's very easy to strive in meditation practice, to try to do your best, to try to get to all the corners, to be the best person you can be. And we really don't have that philosophy around the shadow side. Like, I'm a cleaner. I like to clean the corners. I like to get everything so I can feel relaxed. We're not really doing that around the shadows. Things may come up and it's not the right time. And that's what we're trying to help people discern. What needs to be handled in meditation? Where do you need some help outside? There's a lot of places where people go to have their trauma addressed or that are more spot specific for addictive tendencies, et cetera, than a meditation uh, sitting. And so I, I really clearly wanted to say we're not going to, you know, have you strive to, you know, bring all of your shadow into the light. That's not really the philosophy we're, you know, we're guided by. Yeah, you're right. It's not. It's not a power wash of the shadow. <laughs> it's it's, a, it's a, in some ways it's a little bit more like maybe the metaphor is like you see you sink into a nice warm bath of the practice you you let yourself marinate within that and and if shadow material comes up so be it and you can just decide how you're going to work with it um but it it does it it is different from how i feel like i i receive teaching elsewhere that that um kind of in a somewhat cliche way summarized any content from the shadow as being just derivative of one of the hindrances. And if I could name that hindrance and 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 say it, oh, this is the way it is, and return to something more spiritually sanctified, um, that all would be well. And it it it, it I I think if I may speak for myself, that what shifted for me was stop just stopping to do that. It's not doing that any longer. Like not saying, oh, this is restlessness, and it's like this. I said, okay, maybe, yeah, I feel restless, but what, what's going on with that? And there's the physical, but to really sit with the, the the deeper currents of anxiety or agitation, and to let the associative images and memories that come back from that, so that there's a much un, more unique, specific understanding of my own pattern around it and that requires it to go on i have to let it go on for a while i have to reflect on it as you say i have to talk about it and then all of that brings uh with it a a a broader appreciation of it um and so like i what when the power goes off i'm not breaking out in a cold sweat or what we often say is a, a kinder gentler more curious way to relate to it and then that's the development, how we relate rather than the it, the anxiety, the fear, the storyline. Yeah. Yeah, and that when we're relating to it like a, a trusted friend, which is what our mind-body becomes in a sense, that more gets revealed. 
this is an ongoing process and there will be time. There will be time for this to come, come in. And it takes time. And it takes time. One other thing that we didn't get a chance to touch on, but maybe we can come back to it later, but I want to end on this note, which is, again, a, a, a student shared with me that they said, I'm not meditating every day. And there was, and they mentioned their, their sense of guilt around that. They said, I'm not meditating every day, but when I do, I really enjoy it. Bravo. And, <laughs> but that is, I, I think. Um, <laughs> Kudos. That's what I would have said. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm very much influenced by both of you. Um, and I, I think the the general approach or the the, the 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 reflective meditation that you're sharing it does even though it does open to the shadow at, at times or it has strange non-ordinary meditation experiences there there really is a joy from that kind of i don't know again i don't want to be too specific around what it is but the, the, the a sense of integration um of being that comes comes forward and and maybe I can flag this too, because you brought up the psilocybin movement in Oregon. I've had more than one friend who's done a lot of practice in, say, a formal system. Um, and they've shared this. I feel like I've had my own correlate to this, that those deep, altered, non-ordinary states that are, I find, profoundly healing, nourishing, energizing if anything they're easier to stumble into or stumble upon with this approach which is not what anyone thinks a loose non-dogmatic improvisationally based approach how is that going to lead to deep samadhi or stillness and um and i've it's 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 all part of this this approach, and I, I just think that's part of what's what's really wonderful about it. And counterintuitive. Counterintuitive, exactly. It can't be known really until it happens to you. Exactly. And Do I, you want to say something, Linda? Yeah, I just want to add that you know those deeply profound states. There's a lot of ordinary states that come along with it that have a kind of knowing intuition value that we just have not been used to valuing and it has made this approach very realistic and easy to access for all types of people mm-hmm. that's what i thought yeah no, i continue to find that yeah most types not everyone but lots of types 99.9 percent of types <laughs> <laughs> Do well with reflective. I would go more like 86.7, something. (laughs) Well, look, I wish you both all the success with the American release or the United, the North American release. I don't want to be American centric, but the North American release, I know, I'm sure that's a lot of work on your end. Um, I would love to have another chat with you down the road maybe a month or two out um, or when you get back from sabbatical and uh, we can have this uh, further conversation but um, thank you both and all the best with your with this book and thank you Josh thanks for all the work enjoyable yeah, yeah and, One and second. for all the work you do Josh yeah okay I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Linda Nelly as much as I did 
I always get a lot out of listening to their discussion of practice, um, particularly uh, in the book that they wrote. They're this wonderful conversation about practice and reflective meditation. So do check out their book. There's a link for you in the show notes, and I hope it inspires your practice and brings you closer to the essence of your own experience. Take good care. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Stay safe, stay strong, keep practicing, and I'll see you soon. All my best. 